When sailors describe a storm that no one can escape, they often call it a perfect storm. Not perfect in the sense of ideal, but perfect in the sense of its combining factors. You know, all these things just sort of have to happen in sequence. Like hurricane force winds, and then a cold front, and then a rain, and then a high tide, right? The hurricane force winds alone would be impossible, but hurricane force winds, and a cold front, and rain, and a high tide, a perfect storm. You and I don't need to be sailors, though, to experience a perfect storm. All we need is, I don't know, you name it, right? A recession and a layoff and a child going away to college, and a student loan. <laughs> That's one example. You know, you make up your own. It's not hard because we've all had a perfect storm. We could spend hours sharing our stories. We can usually handle one challenge, but two or three or four at a time? Man, a bomb cyclone and a polar vortex and gale force winds and thunderstorms and hail all at the same time, it's a perfect storm. Tonight we walk with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is the place of a perfect storm. There's a betrayal and an arrest and an assault and a desertion, all leading to death and crucifixion. It all starts with a mob gathering together in Jerusalem. While Christ was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests of the elders of the people. Notice Matthew doesn't mention Romans here. We often, I think in our imaginations, might picture Roman centurions coming with this crowd to arrest Jesus in the garden, but they're not there. That's because the Romans won't come into the picture until the next day. That's when they will mock Jesus, flog him, and crucify him. The crowd that collects here uh, before they get Jesus in the garden is a crowd of Jews. They're, they're chief priests who were, in, who were in charge of the temple and some elders, or the elders, right? These were the rulers of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Senate of Seventy. You know, this is like the Supreme Court and the Congress sending the FBI to come and arrest you. So who's leading this Jewish posse with so much firepower and muscle? It's Judas. And what is Judas up to? Betrayal. Did you ever think that every time you commune up here at the altar, Judas is in the picture? I mean, not just in the, in the piece here, but he's in the words. He's in your mind when you hear it. He's in the, the, he's in the whole thing, right? Every time we celebrate Holy Communion, we hear the words, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed. Well, you can't say betrayed without thinking of the one who betrayed him. 
and that was Judas. This is that night in our text. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. I wish we could really know how he said that. You know, looking at it in the text, it's not, greetings, rabbi. Something more sinister, I'm sure. And Judas kissed him. Jesus said to him, not, friend, do what you came to do, but, friend, do what you came to do. The Jewish posse wouldn't be able to recognize Jesus at night. And perhaps some of them had never even seen him before. So Judas gives them a sign, a greeting and a kiss. In Matthew's gospel, the term friend also appears in Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, to describe a person in a parable who rejects grace for other people. It also comes in Matthew 22, verse 12, to describe a person in a parable who isn't wearing a wedding garment. A friend, therefore, is a friend in name only. This is Judas. Not a friend you would invite to dinner. Then the chaos commences. And behold, or look, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us it was Peter who drew his sword and that the slave's name was Malchus. That Peter cut off Malchus's right ear. The crowd gathers together and the chaos commences. It's a perfect storm. My friends, if you're bouncing up and down in a perfect storm, if you're doing everything you can to survive, if you've battened down the hatches, lowered the anchor, consulted the bank, changed your diet, called an attorney, tightened your budget, gone to rehab or therapy, yet the sea is still churning and the waves are still coming, don't give up. Don't ever give up. Sounds cliche, I know, but it's true. Why? Because Christ is in control. He truly is. He was then and he is now. Judas and the Jews, they appear to be running things in this text, but they only appear to. Christ is really the one in control. How so? Well, then Jesus said to, to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can't appeal to my Father in heaven and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? When his enemies come, Christ goes out to meet them. When Judas approaches, Christ doesn't run. He doesn't hide. Remember, he did that before in the temple when they tried to grab him too early. He just disappeared. They couldn't find him. Not this time. When Peter strikes Malchus, Christ commands Peter to put his sword away. And he does. Jesus controls things now. 
Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Though the powers of darkness rise against him, Christ is in control. He could ask his father for 12 legions of angels. 12 legions. All right, there were, there were 6,000 men in one Roman legion. So, I'm terrible at math. You do the math. 12 times 6,000. 72,000. Yeah, that's what it says in my notes, so I know you're right. Yeah. Jesus doesn't need 72,000 angels because he is in control. During World War II, psychologists compared ground troops with fighter pilots. And they found that after 60 days of continuous combat, the anxiety of ground troops was off the charts compared to the anxiety of fighter pilots. After 60 days, an astounding 93% of fighter pilots were more at peace than the ground troops. Why is that? Because the fighter pilots had some control. Right? They had some control that the troops didn't. Pilots could place their hand on the control stick, move the plane where they needed to go. They could operate the throttles. They could decide where they wanted to fly, shoot who they wanted to shoot. Ground troops, on the other hand, felt forlorn and helpless. They could just as easily be killed standing there or running away. Today, drug commercials tell us, take control of your life with cram it all or whatever, right? Self-help books and seminars teach you, you can have control of your life if you do things or do this or that the right way. But popular wisdom seldom has any real lasting effect. Rather than seek control, relinquish it. Give it all up. Resign as CEO of the universe and see what happens. The universe is too big for you and me to manage anyways. Give your entire complicated mess of a life to Jesus. In Mark, he says, even the wind and Mark says, even the wind and the wa waves obey him. Christ is in control. And the calm can be contagious. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Christ is calm because he trusts the scriptures. He trusts his Father's word. He is the word made in the flesh. The scriptures that predicted all of these events, scriptures such as Zechariah, let's just take a couple from Zechariah here, 11 verse 12, they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. This is written hundreds of years, centuries before Judas actually forked over the silver to the Jews to have him arrested. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me on him whom they have pierced. Well, that's coming later. Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's exactly what happened here in our text. 
In a Peanuts comic strip, Lucy is struggling with her Sunday school memory verse. Finally, she says, maybe it's a verse from the book of Reevaluations. Well, Lucy might have gotten the wrong pronunciation, but she's not wrong about what the book can do, the words can do. Right? The scriptures are a book of reevaluations because they help us reevaluate who is really in control here. Christ is in control of what should be done about sin because he forgives every last one of them. Christ is in control of our prayer. He answers them according to his good and gracious will. Christ is in control of our heavy burdens because he takes them all to the cross. When parents send their children to a camp, they often have to sign a form that asks, who is the responsible party? If Johnny breaks his arm or Susie gets the measles, who is the responsible party? So a parent or a guardian signs his or her name. Christ signed his name for you. And he wrote it in his own blood. When the perfect storm hits, Jesus is the responsible party. It's his desire, his decision to see you and me through. Christ is the shepherd, we are the sheep. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Christ is the rabbi, we are his disciples. Thank God for that. One of three things is happening in our lives right now. We are either heading for a perfect storm, we're in one, or we just got through one. No matter what, we don't have to become hopeless and anxious or faithless. We can stay calm. Why? Because in a perfect storm, Jesus delivers perfect peace for you. May it be so. Amen.